0: A nail man.
1: Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. And I think this is going to be another pretty long show, although maybe not quite as long as the epic length of the last episode, but I had a lot to say about Bad Luck Banging or only Porn, but I'm not sure I've got anything I'm quite so passionate about this week, but I do still have a lot of films to get through. At the cinemas, we have the new Mike mills Joaquin Phoenix film, Come On, Come On, an Afro-Caribbean Christmas family drama romance,
0: Boxing Day, a bizarre British indie, Silent Night, and
1: a protesting American indie film, Blue Bayou. On streaming platforms, I watched the micro-budget Canadian sci-fi thriller Between Waves. And on Netflix, I watched two foreign language films on my way over to Bristol on the bus. The French animation The Summit of the Gods and the Turkish thriller Grudge. So that's seven films in total that I'm going to be talking about in this episode, so without further ado, let's get on with the reviews.
0: Big Screen
1: Come On, Come On is the latest film written and directed by Mike Mills, who is one of my favourite directors. He started out doing music videos and commercials, but his first feature film, Thumbsucker, won prizes at Berlin and Sundance, his second feature, Beginners, got Christopher Plummer his Oscar, and his third feature, 20th Century Women, got Mike Mills himself an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay, an award, personally speaking, I think he should have won. So with that background, he is one of my favourite directors. I really love 20th Century Women and when I heard about this film, Come On, Come On, particularly since it stars Joaquin Phoenix, I was very, very intrigued by it. Having said all that, Mike Mills is married to Miranda July so Percy speaking, I think he only just wins Best Filmmaker in his own household. But anyway, this film stars Joaquin Phoenix as a radio journalist whose current project is travelling around the country and interviewing children about their opinions of the future. One night after recording these interviews with children, he is alone in his hotel room and it is the one-year anniversary of his mother's death. So, feeling... Lonely and nostalgic, he out of the blue phones up his sister, Gabby Hoffman, who has been mildly estranged from Joaquin Phoenix since some harsh words were said around the time of their mother's death. And it just so happens that this phone call out of the blue couldn't have happened at a better time for Gabby Hoffman. Because her ex-husband, Scoot McNary moved out of Los Angeles to Oakland for the sake of a new job, and not unsurprisingly, it has flared up a downswing in Scoop McNary's severe bipolar disorder. So Miranda July needs to go to Oakland and once again clear up her ex-husband's messes, and this means that there is no option for taking care of her son, Woody Norman. So, Joaquin Phoenix agrees to go to Los Angeles for a few days. He's between assignments in his Recording Children project, so he goes to Los Angeles for a few days in order to take care of his nephew Woody Norman. But, again, not unsurprisingly, sorting out Scoop McNary's messes in Oakland is taking a lot longer than... Gabby Hoffman anticipated, so suddenly Joaquin Phoenix is the de facto parent for his nephew for an extended period of time. A period of time where, for his work, he needs to go back home to New York and then go to New Orleans. So it ends up that for several weeks, Joaquin Phoenix is in sole custody of Woody Norman and taking him on this gigantic cross-country road trip during which this weird kid and his mildly
0: estranged uncle connect and bond and all that kind of stuff. All you really needed for me to
1: be interested in this film was say Joaquin Phoenix directed by Mike Mills and I was in but
0: this film is so wonderful it's got so much stuff in it it's
1: been beautifully and lovingly shot in black and white it's got some really interesting philosophical thoughts about parenting about childhood and about the direct process of parenting the day-to-day the moment-to-moment process of parenting and suddenly being thrust into this role which you Never really anticipated, weren't really prepared for. I think over Mike Mill's last few films, I mean, it, ditching Thumbsucker, which was an adaptation of somebody else's novel, his last three films, Beginners, 20th Century Women, and Now Come On, Come On, have directly dealt with families and possibly even his own family. Beginners was loosely based on Mike Mill's own father coming out and leaving the family house. 20th Century Women was loosely based on the story of his mother, who was left with a teenage son's raise and support only available through various women, including his own sisters. And now I believe that what Come On, Come On is doing is talking not only about the parenting process, I mean, this sudden responsibility of being the de facto parent for your nephew. I also think it works well as an examination of the sibling relationship. The relationship between Joaquin Phoenix and Gabby Hoffman has not been good. Harsh words were said around the death of their mother and the funeral arrangements. Harsh words were said by Joaquin Phoenix to Gabby Hoffman about her complicated relationship with her bipolar husband. And Scoot McNary is hardly in this film at all. I'm not even sure he has audible lines of dialogue. Oh no, he does. Very few audible lines of dialogue. But he's excellent in this as he always is. But it's a complicated relationship, and Joaquin Phoenix put his opinions out there which were not appreciated. So, having to spend all this time with his nephew is also an opportunity to examine the sibling relationship between Joaquin Phoenix and Gabby Hoffman. And that is, I think, very well explored. But mostly this is about parenting, about the day-to-day, the moment-to-moment process of parenting. And this kid, Woody Norman, who is also... Excellent. In common with a lot of these child actors, he's actually English. He's appeared in things like Poldark and the White Princess and Silent Witness. But he is excellent
0: as a very weird kid. He's got quirks and odd character beats.
1: He does this thing where he pretends he's an orphan and asks, to stay the night with Gabby Hoffman and Wacky Phoenix and tell them stories about their dead children, i.e. him. It's peculiar. He also has very little filter. He is constantly talking. He doesn't particularly have any barriers, any
0: boundaries, any concept of responsibility. But he, in his own way, is kind of adorable. I mean, on the phone with
1: his sister, Gabby Hoffman, and Gabby Hoffman says to Joaquin Phoenix, I cannot believe how much I love this boy. There is nothing I would not do for him. But sometimes I just want to strangle him. And Joaquin Phoenix kind of feels the same. I mean, this kid has enough idiosyncrasies in enough quirks. That, to me personally, and I think this is a thing I'm supposed to feel, knowing that this kid's father is severely bipolar, I've got concerns about Woody Norman as he grows up, I mean, this character as he grows up.
0: And, yeah, the way it is portrayed is excellent. And the way that Woody Norman
1: embraces this idea of recording sound, I mean, with Joaquin Phoenix going around interviewing these kids, he's got this recording rig, you know, a microphone, uh, a portable recorder, all that kind of stuff. You know, the kind of thing that's like a suitcase size and strapped to your chest and, and you're know, going around doing that. And Woody Norman learns how to use this and is encouraged to do this because you know it's something to do with something that the, these odd couple can share i mean this is in a way one of those films where an older person has his heart warmed and melted by a younger person i mean you know things like collier and all that kind of stuff in a very very different way but anyway woody norman has started learning how to use these things and is actually happy just walking down a los angeles beach or Walking around a New York skate park just recording sounds. And this gives us an opportunity to have some exposition in because this is a kid who's just learning how to use this recording equipment and has no filter. So he asks very awkward questions. I mean, why aren't you married? Oh, you have an ex girlfriend. Why did she leave you? We're I mean, asking these questions, and Wacky Phoenix isn't necessarily going to answer them, but. We as an audience observing this process happening, we get filled in in the, some of the background, some of the details which have happened in Waking Phoenix's past. Why he is this somewhat isolated, somewhat remote character in this situation. And Joaquin Phoenix also starts recording kind of audio journals as well. You know, recording his thoughts and feelings, you know, what he's discussed with his nephew that day, the feelings it has brought up, and that too acts as exposition. And some of that stuff is revealed to be somewhat diegetic towards the end, which is kind of cool as well. So it has the effect of, of almost an omniscient narrator, which is something that was in 20th Century Women, and I really, really appreciate it in 20th century women the structure of that film is the filmmaker i mean the adult filmmaker i mean being played as a teenager by Lucas Jade Zuman but the filmmaker looking back on his past on his mother on the relationships he had with his sisters and the other women who were lodgers at his mother's house so with the foreknowledge with the presence of the future looking back on the past there is an omniscient narrator in 20th century women and looking back on the philosophies and the ideas of the 20th century of the carter administration of the way that california developed the directions that went in given that this was going into the reagan era the uncomfortable directions it eventually went in and here in come on come on we have something somewhat similar only this time it is a real-time narration of the ideas the thoughts the feelings of these characters but also through these interviews with young kids about and the question the main question being asked is what do you think of the future this is almost 21st century kids being a sequel to 20th century women all these kids have these thoughts about you're know, growing up about the way that adults treat them about the environment about you know the end of the world and all that and i have to say i'm not sure if this was scripted or if these were genuine interviews with genuine kids but these kids are remarkably optimistic about the future i mean if you've been listening to me over the past months and years i am incredibly pessimistic about the future but these kids have a level of optimism you know, of We can do something. We will do something. We can change the world. We will make things better. And that comes through. And when you compare that and contrast that to the ways that Woody Norman is interacting with his uncle Joaquin Phoenix, it brings everything together. And the filmmaking process itself also adds in little bits here and there. Throughout the course of the film, it basically stops, and we have quotations from various sources which build into the themes of it. I mean, we have a quotation from an essay by feminist academic Jacqueline Rose, a quotation from an essay by Kirsten Johnson, the filmmaker behind Camera Person and Dick Johnson is Dead. We have a quotation from a children's book, Star Child, by Claire Nivola, who by the way is the aunt of Alessandro I discovered doing some research for this. But that's a beautiful quotation out of a children's book and also a quotation from a children's book called The Bipolar Bear Family by Angela Holloway, designed to help children understand bipolar disorder, which looking at the Goodreads reviews as I was doing research for this has had mixed responses from people who actually have bipolar people in their family. But regardless, the idea that understanding these things and developing these things and using real quotations from other real people in these stories, the film itself becomes a little bit of a lecture. I mean, it's a tiny bit like Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, which I watched last week in that it is directly giving us information. It's just directly giving us these quotations and letting us sit with it and letting us ruminate upon these ideas and
0: these thoughts which have been presented to us. It's a really, really powerful film and kind of charming, kind of sweet. It doesn't
1: have a lot of the harshness. I mean, there are... You know, arguments that are frustrations. I mean, this overactive, arguably hyperactive kid
0: causes issues, but there's enough connection, enough love, enough concern for the
1: welfare of this kid that it does come through. And the way these people interact together, it really does come across strong. I mean, it's a really, really sweet, really believable relationship. I, mean, I didn't think I would say this but I actually think Joaquin Phoenix the person might actually end up being a decent enough father I mean I know he's just had a kid with Rooney Mara who he named River which I think is telling but yeah I think there's a decent chance that Joaquin Phoenix will become a decent enough real life father but
0: yeah this film is a charming delightful film Thought-provoking, heartwarming, occasionally a little harsh, but nothing too devastating.
1: It's really, really nice, and I do thoroughly recommend it. So for
0: me, Come On, Come On, available in the cinemas, is a yay. Next up is the Christmas-esque movie, Boxing Day. One of
1: those large ensemble films set around the Christmas period with misunderstandings and romance and all that kind of stuff, only this time it's an almost entirely Afro Caribbean cast. It is written by, directed by, and stars Amal Amin, who is a very talented young actor who's appeared in films like Yardy Until Death and TV shows like Sensate and I May Destroy You. He's an actor I really, really admire, and apparently he's currently filming something where he's playing martin luther king it's a biopic of the activist bayard rustin directed by george c Wolfe, who did mar rainey's black bottom and amal amin's the guy who's playing martin luther king so hey good gig if you can get it but anyway amal amin writes directs and stars in this film as a successful author who currently lives in new york with his girlfriend, Aja Naomi
0: King. He is just about to publish his latest novel, and with the success
1: of this book, he takes the time to prepare an elaborate proposal to his girlfriend. And as he brings out the ring, Aja Naomi King throws up which obviously kills the mood a little bit, but there's an explanation for this. Secretly, Arjun King has just discovered she's pregnant and is concerned about telling her partner because Amal Amin has made the public statement he doesn't want kids. So as this personal traumas are going on, he is strong-armed to go back to his native London in order to do a book tour to promote his latest novel. This is something he is reluctant to do because he basically hasn't seen or spoken to his family in two years since he ran away to New York after an uncomfortable boxing day party. But now he's going back, and he needs to reconnect with his mother, Marianne John Baptiste, his siblings Tamara Lawrence and shay Cole his estranged father Robbie G, and also his ex-girlfriend, played by Leanne Pinnock from Little Mix, who in the two years since Amal Amin left the country has become a world-famous singer. Something he has not told his current girlfriend, potential fiancé Arjun Naomi King. So, of course, everything's going to get really, really complicated, particularly when Marianne Jean-Baptiste is concerned that her new boyfriend, who she works as a teacher with, Stephen Delane, is white, and will this large, loud Afro-Caribbean family accept this new relationship. So everybody crammed into this small house together with cross-purposes going on, lots of subplots, lots of misunderstandings, lots of romance. But everybody's going to kiss and make up at the end. Of course they are because it's that type of movie. And it is that type of movie. It's just that it's an entirely black cast or black main cast with the exception of Stephen Delane as the new potential boyfriend for Marion Jean baptiste and Claire Skinner is also in the film. She's actually the mother of Leanne Pinnock because this nice white lady married a Nigerian man. So she's the one white face in this very loud black family or black community. And yeah, it's kind of refreshing seeing that. And I I kind of like the fact that the film is called Boxing Day because this family are Jehovah's Witnesses who don't traditionally celebrate Christmas. So yeah, that's. An interesting thing and that is something that you know is very prevalent in the black community i mean the williams family the venus and serena jehovah's witnesses and that's part of the film king richard i believe michael jackson was a jehovah's witness as well so yeah this idea of a large afro-caribbean family reconnecting and everybody got issues with each other i mean Marianne Jean-Baptiste publicly announcing that her husband, Robbie G, had cheated on her and impregnated somebody else and kicked him out of the house at this Boxing Day party as Amal Amin was about to propose to Leanne Pinnock. And he then runs away and falls in with Arjunaomi Naomi King. And now, for the first time in two years, Amal Amin is back and Leanne Pinnock wants him back because she's just been very publicly broken up with in a very tabloid way, from an irresponsible
0: and somewhat idiotic rapper. So, there's all different kinds of stuff going on. The kid brother, Shay Cole, is trying to
1: form a relationship with a slightly older woman, a slightly older woman who is currently dating his own cousin, and his own cousin is violently opposed to this. All different kinds of stuff is going on and it's the kind of stuff that happens in this kind of film. It's just been made by a an entirely black cast and black people behind the camera. I mean, there's stuff in here about the differences between the one Nigerian character in the film and the rest of the people who are Caribbean and or Jamaican. There's stuff about Leanne Pinnock having a much more successful career because she's a lighter-skinned black woman, me and being mixed race. There's stuff about you know, making a point that Leanne Pinnock has, to some degree, had to assimilate in order to become
0: successful. And the fact that you know, this is a Jehovah's Witness family or it seems to me, at least.
1: Those little details and the ways that black British people interact with themselves and the wider world, this is something we don't necessarily see a lot of, and I think it's something that needs to be appreciated and promoted. And I think it's fine. This is a film that doesn't really surprise you. I mean, everybody has a happy ending. The people who should be together end up together, although personally speaking... I was kind of hoping that Leanne Pinnock, the ex-girlfriend, world-famous singer, was going to end up with Amal Amin's sister, Tamara Lawrence. I thought it might be going in that direction because Tamara Lawrence is her quote-unquote assistant, but basically she does fuck all and just hangs around with her famous best friend. And I started to think maybe Leanne Pinnock and Tamara Lawrence are going to end up together, but you know, that doesn't happen. But yeah, it's it's the kind of cheesy or well, mildly cheesy Christmas romance thing which you were anticipating. By the end of the film, there is not one but three grand romantic gestures which are attempted in the best rom-com style. I mean, there's one that's directly ripped off from love, actually. I mean, that is one of the most ripped off scenes in history nowadays. but. I like the fact that not only are there not one, but three grand romantic gestures in this film, but only one of them is successful, and only partially successful at that. So yeah, mildly poking fun at the genre, at the conventions of the genre, whilst being in an entirely black film. And
0: yeah, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It's a strike for diversity it's a strike for inclusivity
1: it's an enjoyable although not particularly challenging romp so for
0: me boxing day is a reasonably high reasonably entertaining meh next up is silent night a low-key british
1: comedy drama i guess you'd call it Written and directed by Camille Griffin, a first-time writer-director, although she's had a long career behind the camera in minor roles. But she is the mother of Roman Griffin Davis, the star of Jojo Rabbit. And I can't help feeling that Roman Griffin Davis's presence in this film helped this get made, and maybe even his paycheck from Jojo Rabbit helped get this film financed. But either way, Roman Griffin Davis is in this film, as are his younger twin brothers, Hardy and Gilby
0: Griffin Davis. But this is a film starring Kieran Knightley and Matthew Goode as the parents
1: of the Griffin Davis boys, who are gathering together in a nice cottage in the countryside for Christmas, inviting over all their. University friends in a big party which happens every year. We have Annabelle Wallace and her husband Rufus Jones and her incredibly spoiled daughter Davida mckenzie We have Lucy Punch and her partner Kirby Howell Baptiste. And we have Sope Dirasu and his much younger partner Lily Rose Depp. All of them gathering in this country house for christmas everybody putting on a brave face and trying to make the best of it despite the fact that right from the start you can tell there's something a little off and it turns out that covering the globe and rapidly coming towards this remote corner of england is a gigantic cloud of toxic, and fatal gas. Some people say it's been caused by the Russians, some people say it's nature fighting back, but either way, this gas cloud is coming and it will kill everybody within a few days. So this Christmas party is the last Christmas party that any of these people will ever have. So
0: can they have a nice time And be promoting the idea of peace and love to
1: all men? Or will it be petty bickering and backfighting
0: and getting in each other's way and arguing? What do you think? This is Britain after all. And in a lot of
1: ways, I think this is a very, very British film. I think the class struggles of Britain are what is mostly on display here. It's one of those situations where I wish American audiences or audiences around the world knew what the significance of a Waitrose carrier bag was. I felt the same thing in the British film Bait from a couple of years back, where these visitors into Cornwall bring Waitrose bags with them. For a British audience, that's immensely significant. For people around the world, they're just not going to pick up on that. But it is easy to pick up on the type of people we are living with here in Silent Night. Kira Knightley is desperately trying to keep everything in order, desperately trying to say everything's fine, despite the fact there are quote-unquote exit pills. In the house, which everybody is intending to take at the end of the weekend. But these are privileged, arguably spoiled people who are gathering together for this Last Supper. It actually kind of weirdly reminded me of Peter's friends. You know, those kind of lovey people that you knew at university, all gathering together, and everybody's got secrets, everybody's got problems
0: in their background. And there's not many nice people. I mean, pretty much all the adults in this film are selfish idiots. Kira Knightley is so concerned that
1: her children should have a happy last few days on Earth, that she is trying far too hard to make things happy. You're hiding the fact from her children that the world is coming to
0: end, despite the fact they've seen the internet, they know it for themselves. There's Annabelle Wallace, who is
1: coming into this household, and it is very clear, very early, that because this is the end of the world, her intention over this weekend is to ignore her rather boring husband, Rufus Jones, and instead finally try to get into the pants of her childhood best friend Sope Dirasu. And Sope Dirasu is not having that because his partner, Lily-Rose Depp, he's in a happy relationship with and she's also recently pregnant. But because she's a little younger than the rest of them and American, she is ignored and overlooked. But I think the worst example of the kind of privilege we are talking about here is Lucy Punt. Lucy Punch comes with her girlfriend or wife, I'm not exactly sure which, but Kirby Howell-Baptiste is the partner of Lucy Punch. And it happens enough that it becomes a pattern that whenever somebody asks Kirby Howell-Baptiste, how are you? Lucy Punch replies, she's fine. And she says, oh, you like Fanta, don't you? And it's clear that Kobe Howard-Baptiste doesn't. I mean, she is a very domineering character. She's a control freak. She's not a nice person. And Kobe Howard-Baptiste just sits there and takes it because she is something of an incomer into this close group of friends from university, being the partner of one of them. But time and time and time again, Lucy Punch dominates her partner Kirby Har-Baptiste, and is just not a nice person. And the little girl, Davina Mackenzie, who's probably, I don't know, 13 or 14 maybe, comes in dressed as a princess and instantly demands that she be given sticky toffee pudding, which she has demanded earlier. So her father and Matthew Good have to go to a nearby Tesco Direct and break into it in order to get sticky toffee
0: pudding. And everybody knows that this kid is a bully and a bitch, but nobody's allowed to say anything. And
1: yeah, the British attitude to politeness, to society, to family is brought to bear here. And I think an upper class understanding of all these things. I think weirdly, this is very much a film about class. These are privileged people who are gathering together and trying to live their last few days comfortably and failing and all of this is being observed by roman griffin davis i mean this is very much an ensemble film but if there is a lead i would say it is roman griffin davis i mean it certainly helps if your mother's the director but roman griffin davis is seeing all this stuff going on and knows it's all bullshit and calls out the fact that it's bullshit I mean, because this is essentially the end of the world, he has been given permission to swear by his parents. So he takes advantage
0: of this opportunity with glee. He's swearing constantly throughout this film. Usually
1: saying, what the fuck are you talking about? You have ruined this life. I mean, this is all your fault. What are you trying to do? We know the world is coming to an end. We don't need to be
0: protected. I mean, this is a concerned mother or concerned parents desperately trying to hide
1: from her children stuff which they already know and stuff which they know will affect them directly. In a lot of ways, Roman Griffin Davis is the voice of sanity in this whole thing.
0: He knows what's coming, he can understand what's coming, and he can see through all the bullshit. I think it's very notable that the most sensible characters
1: in this film are two of the younger ones. I mean there's Roman Griffin Davis and also Lily Rose Depp, you know, this American woman who's you know the partner of Sope Dirisu is pregnant by Sope Dirisu but is probably 10, 15 years younger than all the other adults in this gathering. And she has this attitude, you know, the end is coming. We need to talk about this. We need to address this. We need to confront this. And she is being rather sensible and making rather sensible points. But because she's younger and American and an incomer, she's ignored. And I think that is a very, very deliberate thing. Everything here is leading to the fact that these privileged white people fucked everything up and they're trying to hide it. I mean, there's at one point where Annabelle Wallace and Kira Knightley are sitting down together and talking to her children, and, and this is something you see in the trailer. And they are saying to their children, look, what you need to know is this is not your fault. It's not our fault, but it's not your fault. I mean, they are singularly refusing to take responsibility for the cataclysm which is coming and it's in some way or some form it's probably their
0: fault at some point yet they refuse to take responsibility or even acknowledge the problem exists
1: and it's a very telling moment i thought and there's other telling moments where it is revealed that not everybody is being given these exit pills by the British government. Illegal immigrants and the homeless are not being given a chance to die painlessly and with dignity instead of you know, hemorrhaging everywhere as will happen when this gas reaches them. And that makes a point as well. I mean, I think this is a film which has a point to make, a political statement to make, but I'm not entirely sure it succeeds in making that point. This is a film I was really impressed with for a lot of it, or or at least I appreciated a lot of it. But the final image, the final idea this film leaves us with really annoyed me. I started to wonder if that was where the film was going, you know, a surprise shock button right at the end. And I was hoping it wouldn't happen because in my mind it was unnecessary. But it does happen. There is a surprise shock twist ending right at the end. But it actually doesn't mean anything. It doesn't say anything. It's just a moment of jolting surprise just as you are leaving the film. It doesn't add anything, it doesn't achieve anything, and arguably it conflicts with the thesis that the film has been putting forward. The ideas that the film is promoting are arguably diminished and or destroyed by this final image, which I thought was just totally, totally unnecessary. So yeah, I was very annoyed by that final button at the end, which doesn't make any sense and doesn't add anything. But all around, the cost is good. I mean, Kira Knightley is great. Right, so I mean, a weird niche she's carved out for herself as a yeah, woman living through the end of the world with uh, seeking a friend for the end of the world from what, about five or six years ago now. Lady Rose Depp, proving that she is a good actress again. I think she is another one of the voices of sanity in this. Lucy Punch is always good value, but she is basically a monstrous character in this. Annabelle Wallace, who it is revealed, does have traumatic things in her background, but still, she shouldn't be behaving like that. I mean, ignoring her husband and making advances to... Sope who is attached to somebody else. These are not nice people, but it's all been acted incredibly well. So, yeah, Silent Night is a sometimes funny, sometimes thought provoking movie. It does have some entertainment value to it. I think there's some very, very good stuff here, but I really, really hated the button right at the end which is unnecessary and and doesn't work. So I think that does diminish it a little bit in my mind, and it's just those final two or three seconds of the film which annoyed me. But other than that, it's a decent enough film, so in cinemas, Silent Night is a pretty high, pretty entertaining, pretty thought-provoking meh. The final cinematic film I watched... This week is Blue Bayou. A film written by, directed by, and starring Justin Chan, who possibly you know from the Twilight movies. He was apparently in some of those. He's done lots of stuff on TV and film in America, but now he's directing a film which actually premiered at the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year, which is kind of impressive. But it does have... A hot button issue at its centre, and his co-star in the film is Alicia Vikander, who does have international profile. So, Blue Bayou got attention at the Cannes Film Festival, and in my opinion, deservedly so. It tells the story of a man played by Justin Chon, who was born in Korea but then was adopted by an American family into the deep. Bayou in southern Louisiana, and has grown up entirely in America, has a wife, Alicia Vikander, who is pregnant with his child, and he is
0: the only father that his stepdaughter, Sydney Kowalska, has known. Sydney Kowalska's biological father and Alicia Vicander's ex husband,
1: cop Mark O'Brien, basically ran off almost as soon as she was born. And it's only now, when Sydney Kowalska's about
0: six or seven, that Mark O'Brien has any interest in his daughter at all. But Mark
1: O'Brien is concerned about his daughter now and does want more access to his daughter. So when Mark O'Brien and his partner Emery Cohen see Justin Chan and lisey Vikander and City Kowalsk at a local supermarket, there is a confrontation between these uniformed and armed cops, Mark O'Brien
0: and Emery Cohen, and Mark O'Brien's ex-wife Elise Vikander, During which Justin Chan who didn't do anything, is arrested and savagely beaten by Emery Cohen. Later
1: that night, Celestia Vikander attempts to bail him out of jail, only to be told that he has been taken away by ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, because it turns out that Justin Chan is now in danger of deportation back to Korea, a country he has zero experiences of. Because even though he was legally adopted by an American couple and legally married to an American citizen, Alicia Vicanda, he himself is not a citizen and now is under imminent threat of being deported to Korea. So they try and sort this out, they hire a lawyer Vondekotes Hall, which they can't really afford, and Justin John is forced back into his youthful criminal life trying desperately to keep his family together his baby, which is
0: imminently coming his six, seven year old stepdaughter who he loves and she loves him but He's just not American enough, apparently. Despite the fact he was raised there, he's got an American eagle tattooed across his throat. So, yeah.
1: Over the end credits, it has one of those title crawls, which proves what the point of this film
0: was. Apparently, there are at least 49,000 americans who were
1: legally adopted into the u.s from foreign countries who now face deportation despite being legally adopted into the united states apparently just being adopted by an american family doesn't make you a citizen so what the fuck and there are pictures of people over the end credits who have had this happen, people who are, have been deported or are under danger of being deported simply because the American system doesn't think they're American enough. It's basically like the Windrush scandal here in the United Kingdom, except it seems to be a deliberate policy of the US government to deport as many of these people as possible many of whom have lived here for over 30 years and that is what Justin Chan wanted to make a film about and he did it remarkably well. I mean I have never come across Justin Chan before I mean like I said apparently he was in the Twilight movies he's done other stuff never seen him before but he's very very good in this not only as a a writer and director but also as an actor I absolutely believe this working class, hard working family man who loves Alicia Vikander, loves his stepdaughter, Sydney Kowalska, works as a tattoo artist, is desperately trying to get other jobs at the beginning of the film because, you know, he's got a baby on the way. And the opening scene is a job interview, which. Doesn't go well. I mean, the guy interviewing him says, "You, know where are you from? I'm from St. Francisville, up in the bayou, a bit. No, where, where are you really from?" And the fact that he's got a couple of felony convictions in his
0: youth also doesn't help. So, I mean, the racist attitude being put towards this guy
1: is horrible to see, and unfortunately, all too believable. This guy is American. He's got the accent. His name is Antonio LeBlanc. I mean, how Louisiana do you need? But
0: he's got Asian features and apparently he's not a citizen. So he's just going to have
1: to accept all this stuff which is being put in front of him. And... Trying to work through this court case, Alicia Vicander just doesn't understand why Justin Chan isn't doing everything to try and get back into the country or, or stop himself from being deported. And yeah, you know, why aren't you connecting with your mother? You you told me your mother was
0: dead. And yeah, you know, the childhood traumas which come up around that are painful to hear, but there's so much cross-purposes. I mean, Alicia
1: Vikander starts sort of drifting away from Justin Chon, particularly because Alicia Vikander's mother, Geraldine Singer, is in her ear saying, you know, he was never good enough for you anyway. So, he's got no hope, he's got no connections, and he's probably going to be deported to a country he knows nothing about. All because his partner's ex-husband decided to mess with him. Now, to be fair, Mark O'Brien, the actual father of Sydney Kowalska, isn't outright racist or outright violent, but his cop partner, Emery Cohen, sure as hell is. And now because this racist, redneck cop decided he wanted to help, His partner and getting rid of his rival, he's going to be deported. And a guy with a gun can just do that. I mean, it's a total abuse of power. But that's the situation that Justin Chon has to deal with. And now he's in a situation where he has to prove legally that he is a valuable member of society. And how many people, if you were born in. So, all right, say you were born in the United States and suddenly you have to prove you are a valuable member of society, a useful member of society.
0: How many average people could actually do that? And yet this guy who is raised in America is suddenly forced to do that and forced
1: into a bureaucratic nightmare where the paperwork matters more than actual real life, where what things look like on paper, what you can prove on paper, matters more than real life, than a genuine situation. You know, a loving, committed relationship, a strong father figure to Sidney Kowalska, a baby on the way, yet that just isn't good enough. I mean, this is an angry film it made me angry and I'm not directly affected by it, but it just seems such an absurd situation. How is it possible that if you are legally adopted into the United States, you are not automatically a citizen? Why is that the situation we are in? But apparently that is, and 50,000 odd people are affected by this situation. So, Yeah, Justin Chon wanted to make a point, and he did. He also made a really, really fascinating film. I think there's poetry here. There's a recurring image of the one thing he remembers from his childhood, his babyhood in Korea, a Korean woman surrounded by water lilies. I Making the comparison that a bayou surrounded by water lilies could just as easily be in Southeast Asia as it could be in Louisiana. There's a subplot involving a connection, a friendship he forms with a dying Vietnamese American woman. I mean, she's completely fine because she came in as a refugee, but this woman, Lin Dan Pham, meets randomly Justin Chon in the hospital. You know, She's getting chemotherapy and he's out there for a checkup for his unborn baby. And they connect. I mean, and you know, Sydney Kowalska in the way that small children do, say, "Hey, you look like my dad." You know, this Vietnamese woman and this Korean man. So there's a bond there. uh, And finding an Asian community, even if it's Vietnamese, not Korean. I mean, that's something that means something because it's not necessarily something he's ever had. And the ideas of identity that are brought in. I mean, it's it's actually kind of poetic. And I do think there's some really nice things here and yeah justin chon as actor writer and director impressed me enormously in this and i'm fascinated to see what he comes up with next i think it's a pointed statement that one of his friends is actually an immigration agent and there's some complex relationships come up there and complex relationships between Justin Tron and Alicia Vikander, particularly with the poison being pawned in the ear by Alicia Vikander's mother, Geraldine Singer. So, yeah, a family drama, a political drama, done in a really poetic way. And I did really, really like Blue Bayou. I think it's an angry film, it's an important film. And it shows that something like Windrush can happen particularly if you want it to happen if it's a deliberate policy. And it does seem to be a deliberate policy of the United States government, or at least Trump's United States government, to just deport anybody they can. And that's horrifying. So, yeah, an important statement made a film that I did enjoy watching on an artistic level. So for me, Blue Bayou in the cinemas is a definite
0: yay home movies
1: between waves is a micro budget sci-fi romance that when i first saw the trailer for it and i thought okay that's interesting enough to put on the list i thought it was british but as it turns out it's canadian it is written and directed by Virginia Abramovich, who has a background in children's television and lifetime movies.
0: This seems to be her first proper feature-length film, if you can call it that.
1: Oh, yeah, not to completely dismiss lifetime original TV movies, but this does seem to be the first feature-length film she's produced out of those auspices. But anyway. Between Waves tells the story of a photographer, played by Fiona Graham, who is mourning the fact that her boyfriend, Luke Robinson, has recently disappeared. She's constantly calling up the detective in charge of this missing persons case, She's overly concerned with what happened to him. She's also popping tranquilizers like they're candy and is in a pretty sorry state. But one day, almost as she's completely given up ever seeing her boyfriend again, she sees him running down the street in Toronto and follows him. And he starts saying all these strange things about, I've done it, I've managed to do it, water is the key, that is the way between multiverses. Because while Fiona Graham is a photographer, Luke Robinson is a world-famous quantum physicist, and it seems he might actually have broken the barriers between reality. So, is this Luke Robinson that Fiona Graham has seen her partner or not? Is it somebody from an alternative dimension? And at the end of the day, how much does that matter? Wanting to find answers to these questions, Fiona Graham goes on a trip that they were planning to go
0: on together to the Azores in the middle of the Atlantic, although they are owned by Portugal, trying to reconstruct the final trip that Luke Robinson wanted to make
1: and possibly see between realities and see different versions of herself and her partner Luke Robinson and maybe even a child, which she is somewhat ambivalent about being currently pregnant, which is also something which is whirling around in her mind. So can this couple reconnect across different dimensions
0: and is it even a good idea if they do? So as I was sitting down to watch Between Waves, I mean,
1: it was one of those situations that I was randomly flicking around iTunes just seeing if there was anything new and I noticed that this film Between Waves was available very, very cheap. And I put this on the list a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, okay. since I can get it at a significant discount, I might as well check it out. And as I was sitting down to watch it on iTunes, I realised that this is one of those films that is very, very cheap. It's a micro-budget film done on a shoestring with very little studio involvement, just the people who went up there and made a film for themselves and that's fine it can work really really well i mean there have been very good examples There have been also some very bad examples that in and of itself is not a deal breaker the fact that this is a micro budget film what is a problem is the story is convoluted And when it reveals itself by the end, you realise that, well, if that is where this film has been going, I think it should have been approached in a very different way. I mean, because it's very much about the relationship between Fiona Graham and Luke Robinson and whether or not they can and should they connect across dimensions. But there's actually something else there as well. There's some causality stuff. There's some. Alternative reality stuff, which is in and of itself much more interesting than the actual relationship. The way the film goes, it becomes more and more apparent that not only was this relationship between Fiona Graham and Luke Robinson not as rosy as it first appeared, arguably, both of these characters have significant issues with their personal lives, with the ways they are dealing with themselves. So, it's a genuine question whether they should end up together, even if they can end up together, in my mind. And that is a much more fascinating thing. I mean, travelling across dimensions and causing havoc whilst you do it, that's interesting. Whether or not these two people end up together, I just don't care. And, yeah... That's an issue. I also don't think the acting is particularly up to snuff. There's one or two bomb notes. There's a couple of wooden deliveries in the midst of this. And the script really, really laser focuses on certain things, making absolutely sure you know certain pieces of information, hammering them home, to the point that it just doesn't feel natural. So... I think this is, I mean, it's damning with faint praise, but it's the word that comes to mind. This is an adequate film. The acting isn't quite good enough. The script isn't quite good enough. The story isn't quite good enough, or at least I think it focuses on the wrong things. There's some really, really fascinating concepts at the centre of this, but they're just not approached in, a, in any direct way. I think more should have be been made of the fact that throughout the course of the film, in the midst of her grief, Fiona Graham is popping tranquilizers and could well be hallucinating. And people, Multiple people say to her, do you think you're hallucinating? More could and should have been made of that. And yeah, there, there's, there's tiny little bits here, but the way they've all been put together just doesn't quite work. I like the fact that this is a film set in the Azores, I'm not sure I've ever seen that before, and an Azores not at the height of summer, so it's sort of like windswept islands in the middle of the Atlantic, and that's a an interesting, atmospheric, foggy place to shoot, I mean, I'm sure they must have got tax breaks or something to shoot in the Azores, but yeah, that's an intriguing place, but not enough is done with the location in my opinion. The idea of glimpsing alternative dimensions, alternative versions of yourself, alternative versions of your partner. I don't think enough is done with that. And I I think they mildly fudge the concept of the multiverse. This idea of water being the the barrier between dimensions, that's a little silly, quite frankly. And
0: yeah, it... uh...
1: It's it's just not quite good enough on any level. And yeah, it's um, it's a situation where I, I want to try and find these films. I want to try and find the undiscovered gems. The films that didn't get enough publicity, didn't get enough money. Sometimes you can find Diamonds in the Rough. Unfortunately, this is not really one of them. I mean, it's not so terrible that it's a complete wash, but Between Waves is probably not worth it. I, I certainly don't think it's worth paying for. Eventually, no doubt, it will show up on Sky Cinema or Netflix or something, and if you can see it for free, yeah, it's, as I said, it's an adequate film. If you want to kill a couple of hours, then fine. but. In any other circumstances, I just don't think it's worth it. So, Between Waves, available on streaming platforms, is a pretty low, pretty forgettable,
0: meh. Netflix and chill.
1: The Summit of the Gods is a French animation which has been released onto Netflix and is directed by Patrick Imbert who has worked on excellent French animations like April and the Extraordinary World and the absolutely fantastic and charming Ernest and Celestine, one of the most underrated animated films of the last 20 years. And he was also credited as a co-director on The Big Bad Fox and Other Tales. From the same people who brought us Ernest and Celestine, and honestly, I don't think The Big Bad Fox was as good as Ernest and Celestine, but it did get Patrick Imbert a Cesar Award for Best Animated Feature. This latest film, The Summit of the Gods, is an adaptation of a Japanese manga which seems to be very successful and has already been turned into a live-action Japanese film in 2016. But this is an animated feature from France, even though it's got a mostly Japanese cast. It is set in 1985 as a Japanese photojournalist who works for climbing magazines Is in the Himalayas and is getting bored and frustrated with these expeditions he is following, which are never quite good enough to actually succeed in what they're doing, reach the peaks they're climbing. So he's drowning his sorrows in a Kathmandu bar when somebody tries to sell him a camera, a very, very old. Camera, which the person claims is from the Mallory expedition of 1924. Now, the first person who we know successfully climbed Everest, or at least the first Westerner we know successfully climbed Everest, was Edmund Hillary in 1953. But in 1924, there was a British expedition led by George Mallory, which might have made it. One morning in 1924, George Mallory and his climbing partner Sandy Irvin were 800 feet from the summit of Everest as they set off and were never seen again. Even though George Mallory's body was recovered in 1999, It still remains a matter of great debate whether George Mallory was the first Westerner to reach the summit of Everest. So, naturally, in 1985, in this bar in Kathmandu, this Japanese journalist is very, very eager to get his hands on this camera, which might prove one way or the other whether George Mallory ever reached Everest. But before he can by this old camera, the person who's trying to sell it to him gets beaten up and the person beating him up says, don't take my stuff, and wanders off. This is witnessed by the journalist and because this guy is Japanese and because he is missing a couple of fingers, this journalist suspects that the person who actually found the camera up on Everest is a legendary Japanese climber who disappeared off the face of the earth about three years ago. So suddenly, this photojournalist has two quests he is on. He wants to get his hands on this camera and maybe prove one way or the other whether Mallory ever reached Everest, and he also wants to track down this legendary climber from Japan, and get his story, because it seems like a fascinating story. The best climber in Japan, who had a rivalry with somebody who wasn't necessarily better than him, but was better financed than him. And after a personal tragedy, he disappeared into the ether. So what is his story, and has he actually found Mallory, and has he actually... Climbed Everest from the incredibly hard southwest ascent. So this photojournalist goes on a quest, and it ends up with this photojournalist following this legendary climber as he tries to make an ascent of the southwest face of Everest. And naturally, being a film about climbing, it's much all about the mentality of the people doing it and the reasons behind it and the philosophy of it in a lot of ways so can this photojournalist find himself and find a story on the southwest face of Everest this is an interesting film because there have been quite a few climbing documentaries which have crossed over onto the mainstream recently and indeed climbing films i mean touching the void is you know a hybrid you could argue of drama documentary. You've obviously got Free Solo, The Alpinist earlier in the year. The same week that this was released onto Netflix, there was another live action documentary, 14 Peaks Nothing Is Impossible, which I'm probably going to get around to at some point. So the idea of climbing has entered the zeitgeist somehow, and it is an interesting world to explore. Fundamentally, all these climbing documentaries and animations in this case ask one fundamental question. Why? Why do you risk your life in order to climb these incredibly hard peaks, these incredibly high peaks? And in more than one occasion, even in the documentaries I've seen, people do not survive these sad. So why do you do it? Uh, And that is the philosophical question at the centre of this. And it gets answered in rather interesting ways. And I do like the fact that because this is animated, because this is drawn, you can put these climbers into incredibly dangerous, life-threatening situations, and in certain cases, life-ending situations, without actually putting anybody in physical risk, because you could just draw somebody dying and falling off a cliff rather than actually trying to do it. And that does add to the mystique of this, to the philosophy of this. There are large, large stretches of this film which are basically dialogue-free. We end up in a situation where this climber is attempting an ascent of the southwest face of Everest, but his intention is to do it solo. So, no communication, no intervention. That is what he intends to do. But because this photojournalist wants to document this, it's essentially a slow motion chase movie. As this. Incredibly skilled climber attempts this feat, and he's being pursued and photographed by this photojournalist. And they're both there, they're both following each other's footsteps, but they can't acknowledge each other, they can't communicate with each other because otherwise it's not a solo ascent.
0: And it's this weird halfway house between being a companion and being a pursuer almost. And there are large stretches where it's just
1: completely silent, apart from the noise of the mountain, you know, the, the creaking of snow. I mean, is there an avalanche coming? The mountain is not silent. It is constantly reminding you that Mother Nature is there and it does probably want to kill you. And it's really, really fascinating and kind of gripping. I mean, perhaps not as gripping as if it had been live action. I'm mildly curious about the Japanese live-action version of this from
0: 2016, but drawing it, having it animated, puts everybody in these very dangerous
1: situations. And you do feel it. There are moments of great tension, there are moments of great drama. But it's also a character study of this very, very talented climber who did do great feats in his youth he made fast ascents first ascents of particular climbs in japan he did get a reputation but he never was able to pursue his passion because he was such a misanthrope you know such a a, an isolationist attitude i am going to climb this i mean yeah the other guy was there too no i was the first guy to do this peak he alienates so many people that he just doesn't get the sponsorship he doesn't get the funding he needs in order to make these climbs and other people other less talented people manage to do things that he just isn't able to do because he can't make friends with anybody it's a kind of like the Cohen brothers film inside lewin davis this is, to some degree, a film about a man who fails at life, only in this case he's actually really, really talented. He's the most talented, he just never
0: got the brakes until he does this Ascent of the Southwest Face of Everest solo. So the mentality of this person and the traumatic incident
1: which made him you know, run off to Nepal and not interact with the world at all all of those things build into this character i mean this obsession with the climb this obsession with conquering mother nature and equally this photojournalist has an obsession of his own he is so determined to document this ascent that he himself goes up the southwest face of everest or tries to at least I mean, so each in their own way are obsessed. You, you have this man risking his life to do the Southwest Face of Everest, and you have the man risking his life to document this, to be the journalist documenting this. And the idea of obsession, the, the need to do this kind of thing, it, it's really powerful stuff. So yeah, I think it works on many levels. I mean, and the animation style is pretty cool as well. A lot of the mountains seem to have been rotoscoped or seem to be modified real photos. It seems far too detailed to be actually drawn all that way. So, yeah, that was an interesting idea with the real life mountains so to speak and these animated climbers coming over it. And in certain places I'm not sure if this was a deliberate choice or if it was just convenient but there are certain places where this French director Patrick Imbert really does embrace the anime style of Japanese animation. There are certain places where it gets very very choppy and very very repetitive. There's certain framing choices which come straight out of Japanese animation. I mean a good example is This sequence where the camera is about to be sold and this Carl Imer catches the thief, he has him by the throat against the wall. I mean, it's the kind of thing we've seen many times before. But the same little bit of animation is looped over and over as he's gripping the throat. And you realise that, oh, they're just doing the same thing over and over. I mean, it's a very cheap way of doing animation, which... Japanese companies repeatedly fall back to because they've got so much content to produce that in a lot of cases the these anime films and TV shows use very repetitive animation. So I'm not sure if that was a deliberate nod to the anime style. I mean the look of the film is somewhat anime inspired. But this French film has a very Japanese feel, not least of which because it has Japanese protagonists. But it is pretty cool. This will be eligible for the animated feature Oscar this coming year. In fact, I think the animation list has already been announced of eligible films and this was on it. I would be surprised if it made a nomination. It probably won't make my list of nominations. But it is an interesting and occasionally gripping animated feature about the mentality of climbing, which is a subject which has been come back to again and again. So, for me, The Summit of the Gods, available on Netflix, is a pretty high, solid meh. Next up, we have the Turkish film Grudge which stars the legendary Turkish playwright, director, screenwriter, actor, Yilmaz Erdogan, who also wrote this movie, Grudge. It's never acknowledged in the credits for this film, but it turns out that this Turkish film, Grudge, is a remake of a Korean film from 2015 called Chronicles of Evil which in turn was based on a Korean manga. Is manga the right term if it's Korean? I'm not sure. But a Korean comic book got adapted into Chronicles of Evil, and now Yilmaz Erdogan has adapted this Korean film and stars in it himself. As a police captain in Istanbul who has just been given a very prestigious award, which is the first signpost that this guy is just about to get a major promotion. So he goes out celebrating with his team, one night gets in a taxi to go home, but the taxi doesn't take him home. Instead, the taxi driver takes him to a remote wooded area and basically attacks him with a knife. The taxi driver says, You will pay for what you have done, Captain Haroun, and attacks him with a knife. And in self defense, Yelmaz Erdogan kills this man. But just as he's about to call the police, tell the authorities, I've just killed this guy in a case of clear self defense, he gets a phone call from his friend and former boss. Who's just given him the award, saying, "Look, I've just had a phone call from the minister. Expect good news within the next few days. Just keep your head down, and you will get this major promotion." So, with this promotion imminent, he decides to not tell anybody about this dead body. Covers it up. Gets his fingerprints off the. Car, off the knife, whatever, and goes home. The next morning, across the street from the Istanbul police department, there is a giant crane at a construction site, and off this crane, a dead body is hanging. Basically, taunting the police, saying, I'm going to hang this body directly across the street from the Istanbul police. Yomaz Erdogan is given the case and is horrified to discover that this man hanging off the crane is the taxi driver he killed the night before. So somebody is clearly after him and somebody is trying to throw his life into chaos. So who is it and what has Yomaz Erdogan done in his
0: past? that deserves such treatment this is a b-movie basically
1: it looked interesting i mean i recognized yomas erdogan when i saw the trailer for it and i've seen him in lots of stuff earlier this year he was in have you ever seen fireflies which he also wrote he wrote the original play and the idea of a police chief having his past come back to haunt him just as he's about to get this major promotion, you know, can he cover it up, will he cover it up, that sounded interesting. But this is pretty B-movie stuff. It's the type of film where there's loud bombastic music and you're in the incident room and there's people looking busy. I mean, it doesn't feel natural. It feels like this is what the director thinks a police incident room should look like. It doesn't feel like a police incident room. It feels like a director's idea of what a police incident room should be. And the director of this film is Turkan Daria, who's done a lot of Turkish television, but I don't think he's actually done a feature film before this. It's the type of film where... One of the younger cops completely mishandles evidence. If he doesn't put gloves on before he investigates this taxi. He picks up a piece of evidence and doesn't tell anybody about it. At a later part of the film, where the Casamouse games have started, the Mind Games have started, a suspect asks for the recording equipment to be turned off, and that request is granted. At certain points, various people throughout the course of the film have their inner monologue just said out loud. Possibly this is from the original Korean film, and possibly this is you know, the thought bubbles in the original comic book, but it feels awkward when you put it into a feature film. There's stuff that happens here purely for the sake of plot, purely so we can get to this big, dramatic confrontation at the end between
0: Yomaz Erdogan and the person he supposedly treated badly in the past and it's a typical kind of maverick cop kind of thing he
1: has a conversation with an old informant and eventually he just gets beaten up his friend and former boss says to Yama you know, Erdogan at one point, you know, do what you like after you're promoted, just don't beat anybody up right now. I mean, there's a low level of corruption which is going on here. I mean, what he actually did in the past, which people have got this vengeance-fueled plan out for him, I mean, this very elaborate
0: revenge plan. I mean, it's... Intricate, it's got believable patsies, it's got lots
1: of moving parts, it's really, really elaborate for
0: what, in relative terms, is a minor crime which Yilmaz Erdogan committed in his youth. So
1: yeah, it's got lots of clichés, not particularly well handled. And some odd decisions in the directions this film went. So, yeah, as a pretty
0: standard potboiler, it functions. I mean, it's okay, but there's so much better stuff out there. So, I, I, at the end of the day,
1: I just don't think Grudge is worth it on its own terms as a somewhat unbelievable somewhat b-movie police procedural it's okay but there are better things out there i don't think you'd have a bad time watching it but at the same time i just don't think it's worth watching grudge it's not a particularly passionate nay but i think i'm going to give grudge available on netflix a nay there is just better stuff out there
0: Coming attractions.
1: It's another oddly busy week at the cinemas next week, with two really big releases and a handful of other things which have also got thrown out into the cinemas as the year comes to a close. Probably the biggest release of the week is the new version of West
0: Side Story, Directed by Steven Spielberg, which seems a bit of a strange choice. But anyway,
1: this is a new big screen adaptation of the enormously successful musical from the 1960s. Steven Spielberg directing with his long term collaborator Tony Kushner acting as screenwriter, based on the original musical by Bernstein, Sondheim, and Lawrence. And yeah, this ends up being a rather fitting tribute to Stephen Sondheim, one of the earliest things that Sondheim got famous for. But West Side Story is a classic tale, or I suppose Romeo and Juliet is a classic tale. And bringing it to the big screen in this incredibly divided world in which we live in does seem appropriate i mean especially as they've actually bothered to cast ethnically appropriate actors in this version rita moreno the awesome rita moreno does return to this version of west side story in a mine role but as far as i can tell all the latinx characters are played by latinx performers including complete newcomer rachel ziegler playing maria Ansel Elgort is playing Tony, and I wasn't aware he had any background as a singer. But yeah, I mean, as I've already been saying this year, it's been a really good year for musicals, so let's see if this film version of a classic musical is up to snuff. The other big release of the week is the kiddie-friendly film Clifford the Big Red Dog based on the classic series of children's books, which I must admit I don't think I ever read when I was a kid. I'm not hugely familiar with Clifford the Big Red Dog, and from everything I've seen in the trailer and everything I've seen in the publicity, it looks firmly aimed at a very young audience. But it's one of those situations that it's playing at the Odeon, so I can just walk in using my limitless card, so I'll probably end up watching Clifford the Big Red Dog. It does actually intrigue me that in the trailer there is a Wilhelm scream, so yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, it's uh, a story of a girl living in modern-day New York who gets a red puppy who overnight grows to about 10 feet tall and hijinks ensue with this girl and a mildly irresponsible uncle played by Jack Whitehall, who I'm honestly not the hugest fan of, but anyway. Clifford the Big Red Dog, I can see it for free, so I'll probably end up watching it anyway. There's another film out this week, which is an Icelandic film called Lamb which actually got submitted by Iceland to this year's Oscars. And I'm somewhat on the fence about seeing this film. I mean, I've already had the opportunity to watch it. It was one of the films that was playing at the Film Bath Festival, but I skipped over it because it doesn't strongly appeal to me. It looks kind of weird. It's basically a horror film which stars Noomi Rapace, who apparently already spoke Icelandic before she was cast in this film, so there's very little that woman can't do. That's at least three languages she apparently speaks fluently, but anyway. Numi Repas and her husband are sheep farmers in remote rural Iceland and are desperate for a child. And when something strange is born in their sheep shed this might be the answer to their prayers. Or is it? And yeah, it looks like kind of a folk horror fable kind of thing, and it doesn't strongly appeal to me, but we're in a situation where next Wednesday, as I'm recording, the 15-film long list for the International Feature Competition this year will be announced. And if Lamb is one of those 15 films, and I think it's got something of a history, it's done
0: some of the festival circuit, if it does end up on that 15 film long list, I will end up watching it and releasing my review. But otherwise, I'm not really sure I'm interested
1: enough in Lamb to make the effort to go and see it because it's actually not playing in bath which i was a little surprised to see i was assuming that if i did want to watch it i can just pick it up when it got released on the little
0: but it's not being released at the little so there you go there might be a review of lamb the icelandic film
1: next week but as things stand probably not and there are another couple of foreign language films which are guessing releases this week, but they're films that I've already got reviews of from way back at the beginning of the year. There is the Norwegian film Hope, which was on last year's or this year's, the beginning of this year's list of foreign language Oscar shortlists or international feature Oscar longlist. So, because it was on that 15 film list. I watched it through extra legal means and I've already recorded my review of it.
0: It's about a woman who is a director. It's somewhat based on the director's real life and she gets cancer again and has to deal with it, has to deal with the potential of leaving her children her stepchildren behind her
1: but she doesn't want to ruin christmas so she only tells her husband and her husband played by stellan skarsgård is not dealing with it particularly well and the real life person who stellan skarsgård is the avatar for the person who's in a relationship with the director of the film is the norwegian guy who directed in order of disappearance and the remake, Cold Pursuit. So, yeah, that was an interesting power couple in Norwegian filmmaking, and this is their story of the wife struggling through cancer, which I have a few issues with. I don't think it was great. I certainly didn't think it deserved to end up on the 15-film long list, but I've already recorded a review of it, and that will be released at some point this week, as will my review of the Iranian film, There
0: Is No Evil. Now, this is one of the films I watched in the myriad
1: online film festivals that there were available at the beginning of the year. I believe I watched There Is No Evil at the Borderlands Film Festival, based in the Hereford region. I heard used my package of tickets with enough of the stuff that i knew i needed to watch that particular festival so i just filled in with stuff that might be interesting or might become relevant and it looked to me like this might be the kind of film that iran would submit to the oscars in the end it didn't but it did do well at i believe it was the berlin film festival but yeah this iranian film that is no evil is is a powerful and sometimes harrowing film made up of a series of short films all based around the idea of performing executions in the totalitarian state of Iran. And as it turns out, the people who perform state-sanctioned executions in Iran are conscripts into the Iranian army it is entirely possible that you will be doing national service in the Iranian military, hanging people. And how does that affect you? What does that do? And this is the question which is asked in this film. And it's powerful stuff, but in common with a lot of anthology films, I think there are certain ones that are stronger than others. But I have already watched this at that online film festival at the beginning of the year, so I have already got a review of it. And in this situation, I might actually end up just releasing a quick interim show sometime in the middle of the week if I have the time to do it, since I've already got those two reviews already in the bag and recorded. If I manage to tick off some of my streaming films before then as well, I might just release an extra episode sometime in the middle of the week if I find the time. So yeah, possibly look out for that. But either way, Hope from Norway and There Is No Evil from Iran are both being released cinematically this week. And next Wednesday, the latest Marvel blockbuster is being released. Spider-Man No Way Home.
0: I really don't know what my recording schedule is going to end up being. But I might put that in a
1: new episode as well. So. Alerting about that, although I'm sure if you care about it, you already know that Spider Man No Way Home is going to be coming out this midweek. On streaming platforms, indeed on Amazon Prime this week, there are a couple of new releases which look intriguing. One is a new film
0: from Guy Ritchie, starring Jason Statham called wrath of man about a bank heist that goes wrong or a armored car
1: truck heist that goes wrong and there's something about jason statham taking vengeance or something it looks like very very basic very very old school guy richie with none of the invention or wit that he's had or at least attempted to have over recent years i mean Guy Ritchie's really gone off the boil recently. His last few films have not been very good. And I'm I'm not hugely interested in The Wrath of Man, but it is coming out this week and I might end up watching it, so that's on the list. I'm much more interested about the other Amazon Prime video release this week called Encounter. This is a film starring Riz Ahmed as a traumatised veteran of the US military who has become convinced that an alien invasion is underway, a Body Snatchers type alien invasion is underway, and convinced that his ex-wife has been infected by this alien He kidnaps his two small children and runs away across the Arizona desert with the government and the police in pursuit. But is this an alien invasion movie or is this a film about PTSD? It could go either way, judging by the trailer, and either way it could be rather interesting because Riz Ahmed is a really, really cool actor and I am very interested in his new Amazon Prime film release, Encounter on sky cinema this week there are a couple of christmas themed movies in fact sky cinema has got a lot of christmas movies coming out over the festive period there's one starring michael sheen coming out in a couple of weeks which looks very very cool but this week we have two entries eight bit christmas which stars neil patrick harris as a father who is reminiscing about his childhood where he's played by Winslow Fegley from Timmy Fadia Mistakes Were Made, where all he wants for Christmas is an NES. And he will do anything to get one, do anything to get enough money to buy one. And This is all he wants for Christmas. And Neil Patrick Harris is telling this story to his daughter. And his daughter's not really believing this. I mean, what year is this taking place in? Are you sure this is what you did in order to get an NES? But it's basically a film about nostalgia. It looks all but a remake of the successful US Christmas film, A Christmas Story, which doesn't have quite so much of a cultural footprint or impact here in the UK, but It does look like it's evoking that theme, but Neil Patrick Harris in a a tongue-in-cheek, nostalgic look at Christmas sounds pretty cool, and I can just watch it off my skybox, so I will check that out. And also this week on Sky Cinema, there's a Christmas movie which teeters into the cheesy, hallmark-esque end of the Christmas movie market. It's called A Christmas Number One and stars Frida Pinto as the manager of a boy band whose career is starting to slide. And in order to resurrect the career of this boy band, it is decided that what they need to do is they need to get A Christmas Number One. So desperately searching around online, Frida Pinto comes across a very sick teenage girl singing a Christmas song. And Frida Pinto thinks, okay, this is not only a good song, it's a good story, we need to get access to this song. So she goes and finds the sick girl, and it turns out the song was written by her uncle, Ewan Rian, who is the bassist in a death metal band, and he's the one who wrote this song and is very reluctant for this charming song that he wrote for his sick niece to be used at, to resurrect the career of this boy band. So Frida Pinto and Ewan and Rian start clashing together in a Christmas movie, so of course they're going to end up kissing by the end of the movie, or at least I assume that's what's going to happen, it's that kind of film. But yeah, it's cheesy, but it could be charming, so I do want to check out A Christmas Number One. And there have been a lot of those cheesy Christmas movies on Netflix over recent weeks, but the one new release this week which intrigues me is something completely different and has a really interesting blending of stuff, of
0: influences in the -the behind-the-scenes makeup of this film. It's called The Unforgiven and stars Sandra Bullock. So far,
1: so normal, but it's directed by Nora Fingscheit, the German director who only last year brought us the excellent System Crasher, which honestly I think should have been nominated for the International Feature Oscar. It was on the long list, but didn't end up getting nominated. But it was an excellent film, with an outstanding performance by the child actor, Helena Zengel,
0: who then went on to the Tom Hanks film, The News of the World. But the film is also based on a
1: British TV miniseries called Unforgiven, written by the awesome British screenwriter Sally Wainwright.
0: This was released, I think back in 2009, starred Sir Jones, and tells the story, as this film, The Unforgiven, does, of a woman who is released
1: from jail after committing horrendous crimes, but she wants to put her life back together, she wants to reconnect with her daughter, but society will not forgive her for what she's
0: done in the past. So there's nowhere for her to turn. And yeah, turning a British
1: 2009 TV miniseries starring Saran Jones into a Hollywood movie starring Sandra Bullock and directed by a German director Very, very strange path, but The Unforgiven does look like an interesting story, so I do want to check that out. My highest priorities for the stuff that's already released on streaming platforms.
0: I'm very interested in the American indie film Wild Indian. the two-handed American Indie The Last Days of Capitalism, and the micro-budget
1: films from America The Way You Look Tonight and What She Said. I'm also very intrigued by Daniel Brühl directing himself in the German film Next Door. On Netflix, my highest priorities are the potential Oscar winner The Power of the Dog, and the other Stephen Sondheim-related musical released in recent times, Tick, Tick, Boom. As I said, there are several cheesy Christmas Hallmark-esque films that Netflix have released recently, and the one that I think I'm most intrigued in is the Kerry Always Brooke Shields Stara, A Castle for Christmas. I'm still intrigued, even though it's months past Halloween in Night Teeth, Collateral Only Vampires, and also the German film Prey, I think, is what I'm going to watch the next time I have to travel over to Bristol on the bus. Because it's easier watching a film with subtitles when you're watching this on the bus. So yeah, Prey is basically hunting humans for sport. Is the approach as a group of
0: German men, I think, on a stag do go into the woods and start being picked off by a sniper. So, those are my highest priorities on Netflix. As I said, there's a
1: chance I will have a midweek bonus episode essentially with the reviews I've already got recorded for the foreign language films which are coming out at the end of the week. I'm still gradually working my way through the July foreplay. I'm, as always, very, very behind with that particular endeavour. But there will be another, by the looks of it, pretty lengthy standard episode coming at the end of the week. And before I leave you, a reminder that there were two yays in this particular episode, both of them in the cinemas. Come On, Come On is. A brilliant examination of parenting, of the process of parenting. It's beautiful, it's heartfelt, it's philosophical. The screenplay is excellent, very similar to the screenplay of 20th Century Women, and I'm absolutely convinced that in my personal Oscars, even if not in the real ones, come on, come on, we'll be getting a Best Original Screenplay nod. It's excellent. The performances all round are excellent, and come on, come on, is a heartwarming, occasionally challenging film about the process of parenting, and I think it's excellent, and it is a yay. As is Blue Bayou. A very, very angry film about an absurd situation which exists in the US. I mean, how is it possible that if you are legally adopted by an American family... You are not automatically a citizen. That's just ludicrous. But that's what we have. And Justin Chon has made a film which highlights this absurd situation and does it really, really well. The anger, the frustration, the care that Justin Chon has for his family, the desperation he has. I will stay with my family. I will protect my family. I will provide for my family, even though the government doesn't want me to. It's beautiful to see, and Justin Chon is definitely a filmmaker to keep an eye on, and indeed an actor to keep an eye on. I think he's an excellent actor as well. And Blue Bayou as a film is a yay. So those are the two yays in this particular episode, and let's see if there are any more next week. But until then, all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay, or May, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod.
0: And I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.